Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, as I mentioned before the service, I don't have a specific Mother's Day message today. I have in several years past. We did that family conference, uh, family emphasis time at the beginning of this year and then again last year. Um, and so I thought that I would continue in Ecclesiastes, and, and in doing so, I am going to draw it toward mothers today. There's a particular point in our application, which I think will be of help um, to mothers as well as others, um, and we will draw our attention to that at, at the end of the service. We're continuing in Ecclesiastes 4, and as we do so, remember, we've been talking about the problems of God being in control. This is the final week. So in Ecclesiastes 3, recall Solomon writes to everything there is a season, right? So he recognizes God's divine plan, God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that God has a purpose for everything. And then we've walked through all of the things that compete with that theory. All of the, the elements of life where somebody would say, how can God... Be in control. How can a loving God be sovereign if this exists? Oppression and corruption and death. And we've walked through several. Well, this week we talk about dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. The fact that we're not perfect. But people want us to be. And we're not satisfied with others any more than others are satisfied with us. And as we walk through it today, we're going to talk both toward leaders and toward followers. And we're also going to highlight the danger of becoming a person who is unwilling to be admonished through pride and through feeling like we've seen enough, we've done enough, that we don't really need anybody else to help us out anymore. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 4 today, where Solomon writes this. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Solomon begins his consideration today by contrasting two people. One is a poor child, yet he says it's a poor and wise child, a child that has wisdom. And we, we could get into wisdom. We're not going to get exactly into the definition of wisdom as a whole today. We'll talk about it in part. But he has wisdom, and we're going to see what Solomon means by that in just a moment. He says, better is a poor and wise child. And then he introduces this second actor, the second character, and he is an old and foolish king. So you have a poor and wise child, and you have an old and foolish king. Well, what is it that makes this poor child wise? And what is it that makes this old king foolish? Well, we see at the end of this verse what it is. This next phrase is very important because it's the context within which Solomon is calling the young man wise and he's calling the old king foolish. And it's the context of being admonished is what our King James says. The old king is foolish because he has come to the point in his life where he's no longer willing to accept teaching, where he's no longer willing to accept advice, where he's no longer willing to listen to others. He is confirmed in the pride of his thinking. He thinks that he knows best and he will not accept anybody questioning him. He will not accept anybody admonishing him. He has his ideas. He has his direction and he's going to stick to them. The old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, what's that saying? That's saying that this old man is no longer willing to be admonished, right? That's really what it is. It's a man that's no longer willing to change his ways. 
This is a man who has established his authority and then surrounded himself, probably, if he's a king, he surrounded himself with yes men, those who refused to either by fear or, or, or whatever the case may be, they refuse to contradict him. So that every decision he makes is one that will be agreed upon by those who are his counselors and advisors. He's an old king, he refuses to be admonished, and Solomon says, therefore, he is a foolish king. And indeed, whether old or young, life teaches us quite clearly that foolishness and willfulness often go together, don't they? The stubborn man or woman who is unwilling to listen to others will often have to learn things the hard way. And Solomon says, a young and poor child, but one who is wise through a willingness to be admonished, through a tender heart to God and to others, is far better than an old king who is not. Now consider where Solomon goes with this thought in verse 14. And then after we get through verse 14, we're going to kind of see where Solomon might be going with this a little bit. In verse 14 he says this, For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. Now this verse can be somewhat difficult to interpret because of the ambiguity of the pronouns. Uh, When we read the Bible, one of the most important elements of interpretation is how we interpret pronouns, what we would call pronoun reference. A pronoun is a word that takes the place of a noun in a sentence. So I might say, Bob went to the store. Bob went to the store. And then I might say, he needed groceries. Well, he is a pronoun that is pointing back to Bob. So we know that Bob needed groceries. He went to the store because Bob needed groceries. The he stands in the place of Bob. And in that particular sentence, interpretation is easy, right? Bob went to the store. He needed groceries. We know who the he is. He is Bob. And we know that it's Bob that needs groceries. But what if I changed the sentence a little bit and I said it this way? Bob and Joe went to the store. He needed groceries. Well, now we have two men going to the store, but only one of them needing groceries. And now we have to try to discern which one of the men, the he, the pronoun reference, is directed to. Is it Bob that needs the groceries, or is it Joe that needs the groceries? Now, in typical English grammar, we would say the nearest antecedent. So, in other words, if you have Bob and Joe went to the store, he needed groceries, the he would go to the nearest noun, which is Joe. And that's how we would normally, I'm giving you a grammar lesson, I know. This is how we would normally interpret English grammar. It's called the nearest antecedent. And we would do the same in Greek. And and to, to one degree or another in Hebrew as well. And so we would be tempted here to say, okay, for out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in the kingdom becometh poor. And both of these we'd say, well, the nearest antecedent to these is the king. If we look in verse 13, it says, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king, who will no more be admonished, for out of prison he cometh to reign. And there are many interpreters who have interpreted it this way, that the king is the one who came out of prison to reign, and then becomes poor. However, I don't believe this is exactly how we ought to uh, interpret this here. And it's certainly not how the King James interpreted it. They did not use a nearest antecedent when they were translating this. What they did instead is they saw a parallel. They saw a parallel between verses 13 and verses 14. And using a concept of poetry... 
They saw an ABAB relationship. Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? I don't know. No, I do. Uh, And I'm going to try to get you there as well. All right. So in other words, in verse 13, we read this. Better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king who will not be admonished. And then we see in verse 14, the first phrase, talk about the poor and wise child. And the second phrase, talk about the old and foolish king. So for out of prison, he cometh to reign. That's the poor and wise child. Who will come out of prison to reign. And then the old and foolish king, he is born in his kingdom. He's born to the reign. He's born to the rule. He's born into the kingdom. But then he will come and become poor. So we see here a parallelism is what we'd call it. And it's Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry, remember, when we talk about Hebrew poetry, whether it was specifically in the Psalms and the Proverbs, Hebrew poetry is not poetry of sound, rhyming of sound. In, in the English language, if our poetry doesn't rhyme, it's just not, there's something to that, right? There, there are certain ones that don't rhyme, haikus and such and whatnot, but you want your poetry to rhyme. You want your songs to rhyme. When a song doesn't rhyme, it just doesn't really sound right. And you can tell when someone's trying to stretch it. It just doesn't feel, doesn't sound good to the English ear. It's how we like our poetry. We like our poetry to rhyme. That's not how Hebrew poetry worked. Hebrew poetry was not rhyme of sound. It was rhyme of thought. Thought patterns. And so here we have a rhyme of thought. An A-B-A-B relationship. A-A-B-B. And together, these two form a singular idea. All right? And that's how I believe this is to be interpreted. And I'm gonna, going to um, interpret it as such. I believe this is how the King James translators did as well. As I was reading some commentaries to try to dig into this a little bit, none of them were satisfactory. And one of the reasons why none of them were satisfactory is because they were um, using the the translations of various other versions which did not see the same thing that the King James translators saw here. And I really do like the way the King James translators, what they identified here. And I believe that there's some real wisdom in recognizing this parallel, recognizing this relationship. And there's a principle here. There's a principle here that works itself out. See, because as we think about what these two verses are saying, that the, that the, the poor and wise child becomes a king out of prison to reign, and then the, the king that's old and foolish becomes poor, we understand that this is not always the case, is it? Solomon must be getting metaphorical here because it cannot be rightly said that every poor wise man is elevated to great heights in society and every old and foolish man is brought down and made made poor. And we, we can see that all the time around us, right? There's plenty of old and foolish men all around us that are still doing pretty good for themselves. But there is a principle at work here which is sound and is found all throughout scriptures and one which goes well beyond material prosperity. May I introduce, may I, may I, may I take you to a couple of verses to see that? In James chapter 1 verse 9, the Bible says this, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. That word low degree there is uh, in other places poor, translated poor, in other places translated humble. James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And so while we don't necessarily always see in the physical sense, the poor and wise child become a a, a king and the old and foolish king be brought to poverty. In a spiritual sense, the principle is absolute, isn't it? 
In a spiritual sense, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and it happens every time. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the sowing and reaping principle. A transcendent principle that we can bank on. That, that, that God tells us is the case. Be not deceived, God said. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. It is a principle in the word of God. It is how God has designed the world to be. This is another one. You can't get around it. That God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God exalts the humble. God abases the proud. First Peter 5, 5. I'm sorry, these are mashed together a little bit here. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Why? For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Proverbs 3, 34. Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace to the lowly. That's where we believe this comes from. All of the times that it's quoted in the New Testament, we, we draw it nearest back to there in Proverbs 3.34, perhaps also uh, in Daniel, which I'll bring us to in just a moment. But do you see the principle? Do you see the trend? Do you see what God is teaching? Do you see this transcendent idea? Remember, it's God's design. And in Ecclesiastes, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about God's design. This is what Solomon is doing. Solomon is pointing to God's design and he's saying, look, I tried it. I tried to go against God's design. It didn't work. So do it God's way. Get on board with God's plan. If you align yourself with God, there will be success. There will be lasting satisfaction where there will otherwise be vanity. And so we're, we're encouraged here to see a principle, the principle of humility unto exaltation and pride unto resisting. And then that brings us to Daniel four thirty seven. This is interesting. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had been brought very low. He had been made to eat the grass of the field as a beast, and and uh, his hair had grown like feathers, and and his his uh, nails had grown like talons, and he basically was turned into a beast for a time until he acknowledged the Lord. And when he acknowledged the Lord, God brought him out. And this is the final verse here that Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar writes Daniel four. And he says this at the end of Daniel 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Nebuchadnezzar might very well be one of the greatest kings to ever walk the earth. If we trust what the vision that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar of the statue which had the head of gold and then the, the chest and arms of silver and then the, the torso and, and thighs of brass and then the legs and feet of, of iron and then iron mixed with clay. If we trust that picture of the kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold, which means his kingdom, his reign, his rule was greater in value, in, in majesty than any that came after him. We go to Rome today and you can see the Colosseum and the majesty and the wonder of the incredible uh, degree of, 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 of detail that is found in that Colosseum. And to think that men did that without heavy machinery <laughs> and to think that men did that without cranes and, and, and bulldozers and wh- what a feat. And then we go back and we look at the, the, the Greek architecture before it and we see incredible detail and intricacy and boy they were amazing and if Rome was iron and if Greece was bronze 
Imagine what gold would have been like. Imagine the majesty of his kingdom. So God says, on the day that he looked out and he said, look at all that I've done for myself. And God says, I'm going to abase you. Nebuchadnezzar says, I've learned something that those who walk in pride, God is able to abase. He resists, he scorns, and he otherwise abases those that walk in pride. It's a principle that we need to grab a hold of. We need to learn humility. We need to learn how to be humble. We need to default to humility. Because that is whom God will exalt. So, we have this contrast here between a man who is poor yet wise, who God exalts, and the man who is rich and powerful but arrogant, whom God resists. And that's what we're seeing here. We're we're seeing this particular parallel, uh, by contrast. And when we read this parallel, this contrast between the poor and wise child and the old and foolish king, uh, your mind might drift to various accounts in scripture where we see this play out. Uh, this is an important thing to do when you're reading the Bible and you see a principle, you should start thinking about areas of the scripture that confirm that principle, where it plays out. Scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. You go to scripture to understand scripture. And so where do we find this principle play out? Well, uh, we might say that, that the, the nearest or most obvious one is Joseph, right? Who is actually elevated from prison prison through his humility to reign. But I think that there's one even closer here. And I think that what Solomon was actually considering as he thought of these two, as he wrote these verses, I think he was thinking of his father. I think he was thinking of David and Saul. The account of David and Saul is an account of this magnitude, is it not? We have a foolish king who was unwilling to listen, who was unwilling to be admonished, who was ready to do things his way. And then we had a poor but wise child who was humble. Now, the one-to-one analogy becomes a little bit interesting when we talk about this out of prison. David didn't come out of prison in the closest sense of the word, but he did come out of exile. He did come out of fleeing for his life from the old and foolish king. During our study in 1 Samuel, we came across the point where God rejected Solomon as the king in Israel. And in this account, Saul had chosen to sacrifice unto the Lord before battle, but had not waited for Samuel, if you recall. Samuel was supposed to come. He said, I'll come, and then we'll do the sacrifice, and then you can go fight the battle. Well, Samuel was late. Saul was getting nervous because he wanted to do this sacrifice. He was trusting in the sacrifice rather than trusting in the God behind the sacrifice. And so he does the sacrifice. Samuel confronts him. And he justifies, Saul justifies his rebellion by saying it was important to petition the Lord before the battle begun. So he was forced to go outside of his own authority to do it. And this is where we pick up in 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. The Bible says this, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion is, is just as bad as if you were sacrificing that cow to a false god. Your stubbornness, your unwillingness to be admonished, is just as bad as idolatry, as if you were bowing down to false gods. He says, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord through your stubbornness and through your obstinance, through your unwillingness to be admonished, 
he hath also rejected thee from being king. This is the legacy of an old and foolish king who refuses to be admonished. And what happens? He is taken from his throne and he is made poor. This is the legacy of the man who decides his way is better than God's way. Those who walk in pride, God is able to abase. And in Saul, we find a vivid picture of the king who, due to Israel's relationship with God, was quite literally rejected from the throne and cast down into poverty. Now, he remained king in the sense of the word, but of course he went mad. He spent the rest of his life focused upon David alone and not upon God's will for him or his country. But you know, the similarities become even more striking as we continue reading in verses 24 to 28 of 1 Samuel 15. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people. And obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee pardon my sin. And turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul. I will not return with thee. For thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away. He that would be Saul. Laid hold. Excuse me. Samuel laid hold upon his mantle. And it rent. And Samuel said unto him. The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Saul seeks only in this situation. He does not repent. When he hears God say, I've rent the kingdom from you, Saul says, he doesn't repent of his actions. He simply says, let me say face. Go with me so that I won't look bad. Samuel says, I will not. And as he turns to leave his outer robe, it tears and he says, just as the robe has been torn, so too has the kingdom been rent from you. And given to your neighbor who's better than you are. And then in the next chapter we find Samuel sent to Bethlehem to anoint a young man. A poor but wise child. First Samuel 16.6 And it came to pass when they were come that he, that would be Samuel, looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely this big, strong, strapping young man must be the one. And God says, look, I'm not looking for another old and foolish king. I'm looking for a poor and wise child. So he goes through the list. God says, but the Lord, the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. I'm looking for the poor and wise child. Not another old and foolish king. So it took eight sons. On the eighth son, the eighth son was chosen. He was the one that was out on the field. Humbly doing his work. God says this is the one who will be great. Not because he is great, but because I can be great through him. Channels only, as we sang this morning, right? Flowing through us, thou canst use us. I'm a channel. David could be a channel. He was a poor and wise child who was brought out of prison and came to reign. Could you imagine Solomon writing these words? Of course, he's in the latter end of his life. He's made a lot of major mistakes. And thinking perhaps on Saul and David. Thinking about the house of Saul and how it came to utter ruin. And the house that now he rules over has been established through his father's humility. Because his father was a poor and wise child, not foolish, because he was willing to be admonished by the Lord.
And I think that any debate as to whether or not this is Solomon, uh, oh, excuse me, this is David and Saul that, that Solomon's thinking of here, uh, would, would be greatly diminished by verse 15. You're still there in Ecclesiastes 4, and look at verse 15. Solomon then comes back to himself, and he says, I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. So Solomon says he considers all the living. So he's looking out, perhaps he's looking out his window, and he sees all the hustle and bustle of people in Jerusalem going to and going from, and commerce and and worship, and all the things that are going on in Jerusalem. And he says, I considered all the people around me, and he says specifically that those people are walking under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. So follow the context. Poor and wise child. An old and foolish king who will no longer be admonished. The poor and wise child is elevated to reign. And the old and foolish king is put down. And now Solomon speaks of a second child who stands up in the king's stead. Now if Solomon is speaking about David and Saul, then David was the poor and wise child who was elevated to reign in the stead of Saul, who was the old and foolish king. And in this case, the second child to stand up in his stead would be the son of David. It would be Solomon. He's thinking of himself. He says, I looked out at all the people that were around as the second child stood up in, in the stead of the king. As the poor and wise child's son is now reigning. Me. I'm looking around at everybody else while I'm, while I'm reigning, while I'm ruling. Now, there are plenty who disagree with my interpretation, but from a literal rendering of the Hebrew, I believe this makes the most sense, and this is how I'm going to preach it this morning. So Solomon is considering himself, and he's considering the people that are around him on this day. He's looking out, and he's looking at them, and he's considering himself as their king. And he says this. This is his conclusion. There's no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after them shall not rejoice in him. Who's him? That's that's the king. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon now airs his grievance, alright? So all of that was set up, and it took a little while for us, because we don't speak Hebrew, to try and parse through exactly what Solomon was thinking here. But I think we may have nailed it. So we've got this now, we've got what Solomon is thinking here, and now he airs his grievance, and he says this, the problem is that, that, that there's no end of the people. There were people then, and there are people now, and you know what? None of them rejoice in the king. It doesn't matter which king you have. They're not happy. They're just not happy people. There was an old and foolish king who would not be admonished. And the people liked him for a little while. Then they didn't like him anymore. And they liked David better, right? By the end of Saul's life, David was the guy. As a matter of fact, before Saul even went insane, David was the guy. He was the guy who they said, David had, uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. They loved David. They, they, they rejoiced in David. David was the guy. He was the man in Israel. And so they, they, they had Saul, and God had given them Saul, and then they didn't like Saul. And then David comes to reign. And certainly David is going to be accepted now, but you know, the people had problems with David, right? They really didn't like David when push came to shove. So much so that they followed his son Absalom in rebellion against David. Absalom's better than David. The grass is always greener, isn't it? There's always a better leader on the horizon. The grass is always greener on the other side. Get rid of Saul, give us David. Get rid of David. Give us Absalom. And now Solomon's reigning. He looks out at all the people and he says, and they don't like me either. The old and foolish king, they don't like him. The poor and wise child, they don't like him. The child is a child, they don't like him either. And so Solomon says, this is vanity. 
lacking that which is necessary unto lasting satisfaction and vexation of spirit. Makes me tired just thinking about it. Vanity. And on both ends, really, isn't it? On the leadership end, there's no lasting satisfaction in leadership because there will always be people dissatisfied with you. On the follower end, there's never a situation where you will be under a leader that you will ever be fully satisfied with. And that because both leaders and followers are human, aren't we? We're all so terribly human. And that in and of itself is vanity and vexation of spirit. So, we've taught through this passage this morning, and I'd like to draw our attention in a couple of different directions. The first question I'd like to ask of you, it's really two questions, in a manner of speaking, uh, but this first question, are you wise or foolish? Are you stubborn or, or are you able to be admonished? Um, as we were talking about the poor and wise child and the old and foolish king, I don't know if the Holy Spirit was doing something in you, but did the Holy Spirit kind of pinpoint one of these that you are? Did, did something come to mind that say, you know, I'm a little bit more like that old and foolish king than I think I'd like to admit? Or, by God's grace, maybe you're more like the poor and wise child. We really need to understand how this relationship between humility and pride and exaltation and abasement works. Because it is a, what we'll call a divine non-negotiable You cannot bargain with God on this one. You cannot fool God into thinking you're something you're not. You can't put on the, the clothing of humility, walk before God and expect Him not to see the heart of pride. It doesn't work that way. You can dress yourself up as one thing and be another thing and think that you're going to get away with it and you might be able to get away with it in the church and you might be able to get away with it in society but you're not going to get away with it before God. The wise man is the humble man. We've talked several verses. Let me give you a few more. Proverbs 15.33 The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. Also Matthew 23.12 And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Before honor is humility. (coughs) Excuse me. You know, we've said several times over the last several weeks, several months, that faith precedes blessing. If you want spiritual blessing, you have to get it, step out in faith first. The faith comes before the blessing. You can't say, okay, God, give me the blessing and then I'll have faith. You have to step out, and once you step out, then the blessing comes. It's the same thing with honor and humility. Honor, pre, uh, uh, humility, excuse me, precedes honor. Humility always precedes honor. You can't get the exaltation from the Lord and then say, okay, Lord, now that I've been that, I'm going to humble myself. It doesn't work that way. You humble yourself and then comes the honor. And let us simply consider this concept so that we can perhaps get ourselves to the point in faith where we truly believe and invest our lives in this. Can we dedicate ourselves to the words of the Lord when he says, He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So the question is, in what area are you operating under the drive of pride today? In what ways do you refuse to be admonished? Maybe it's a husband and wife. Where husband, you just, the tenor of your 
operation in the home is I'm never wrong. Don't question me. I may be wrong, but don't tell me I'm wrong. And pretend like I'm not wrong, because that's how our home operates. Sounds like an attitude of an old and foolish king who refuses to be admonished. Or maybe it's a wife who understands all this submission stuff, but you know, it's not really how it works in your home. And so, yeah, we talk about submission, we talk about whatever, biblical principles, yep, yep, I get it. But you're more like the old and foolish queen who will not be admonished. Or maybe it's a parent and a child. Far be it from us as parents to be those who can never be admonished. Now, that doesn't mean we allow our children to admonish us. But what it does mean is that our children recognize that we recognize that we're not always right. Or a child, you may not be old yet, but you can still refuse to be admonished, can't you? To humble yourself before your parents' authority. But my parents aren't making right decisions. I don't remember that part of Ephesians 4, 6, 1 and 2. Or Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord as long as they're making good decisions. It's not there. Honor thy father and mother as long as they're doing what you want. It's not there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. No asterisk, no footnote. Are you setting yourself up to be the old and foolish king that will not be admonished? Or are you perhaps poor, but a wise child who God can exalt? Maybe it's a church thing. You have a friend who's telling you, look, you need to stop that. It's wrong. This is not biblical. This is not right. And you refuse to be admonished. Or you simply won't humble yourself to admit that you even have a need. Or you come every week and instead of saying before the Lord, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me as we're supposed to do during our preparation time, that's your time to kind of steal your heart against what you might hear today. Lest you be admonished. What about between you and God's word? You want what you want. God's word says something different, but you won't listen. You won't humble yourself before the inspired word of God because it might be difficult or people might not like it or it might mean losing something that your flesh loves. And so you may not be an old person, but your spirit is old and foolish and refuses to be admonished. We could explore so many applications to this principle, but I don't need to because I know you have the Holy Spirit indwelling if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. So the Spirit of God can do that work, can put into your heart and mind that which for you is the problem. Is there something there? Are you in some way, shape, or form like that old and foolish king that will not be admonished? Remember the principle of God's word because it is a divine non-negotiable. If you exalt yourself against the Lord, he knows how to abase you. And expect it to happen. There comes a point where you just need to make a decision that you're going to humble yourself before your spouse, before your child, before your parent, before your friend, before your church, before God, before whoever it needs to be. And only in the aftermath. Remember, humility precedes honor. So you humble yourself first and then you get the honor. doesn't work the other way around. Can't have the honor before the humility. Start with the humility 
and then watch what God will do. Point number one, are you wise or foolish, stubborn or able to be admonished? Point number two, this one's to leaders. Don't be discouraged by discontented followers. Please, God. A great evil that Solomon speaks of, right? He says this is a great evil. His vanity and vexation of spirit. What is this vanity and vexation of spirit? He says that people are never satisfied. That a group can have three leaders, all of which lead differently, and find in them three great faults. Anyone who's ever been in leadership knows how discouraging this can be. Because the temptation in the heart of a leader, especially a younger and experienced leader, is to see every element of dissatisfaction among those who follow you as a sign that you're doing something wrong. Now, it is not uncommon for the way a person leads to be a major sticking point, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but know this as well. No matter what you do, someone will be displeased. And this is what Solomon calls vanity and vexation of spirit. So what does that mean for you? Moms, this is where I want to talk to you this morning. Because it's Mother's Day, and I didn't do a Mother's Day message today, and I'm sorry if, as a, as, as a follower of me, you're dissatisfied in me for that. Uh, but, I want to talk about you as a leader. Because you're not the leader of your household, but by God's grace, most of you, your husbands have delegated you to be a leader of, of to, to, to run the household, to take care of the children, and to be a, a delegated leader over uh, much of the life of your family and, and the household in which you live. And mothers can have a tendency, as do fathers, and we all have a tendency, to um, gauge ourselves by others, right? So you walk into that home that's significantly cleaner than yours and you say, uh-oh, my house doesn't look like this. And so somebody comes over and there's still dishes in the sink and you, uh-oh, now what are they thinking of me? And your children can never be pleased with your decision. I've got twin daughters and uh, on one day you give them the blue dress and they want the pink dress. The next day you say, okay, you can have the pink dress. Now they want the blue dress, right? And that's just how, how it works. There is no satisfaction and there can be frustration as a mother, as a leader, um, whether it's not getting the recognition. Pastor didn't preach a sermon for mothers on Mother's Day. I'm not getting the recognition I deserve. Whatever it might be. You can be discouraged and discontented by a lack of recognition or by seeing others and how they work or, or by, by the discontent of your children or, or by the verbal discontent of your husband or, or uh, by looking at another relationship and saying, see, that mom is, has it all together. And, and, and by the way, you know that's not true, right? You know that's not true. You have to know that's not true. I do the same thing all the time. I look at every pastor in the area and I say, that pastor's got it all, all together, but that's not true. When I talk to each pastor, that's not true. We know that's not true. Right? You know, mom, that, that, you're, <laughs> that every mom around you is not super mom and you're just the one that didn't get the, the super mom gene. That we all have our struggles. That none of us can do it all on our own. That none of us can do everything. And there's always going to be things that we can pinpoint and say that's not perfect. It's true. But a couple of months ago, we memorized a verse. Have I discouraged you yet? A couple of months ago, we memorized a verse, and I hope it will be an encouragement to you. Colossians 3.23 says this, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as unto the Lord, 
and not unto men. I'm talking to everybody, but mothers, happy Mother's Day. And I really want to focus, I want, I, 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 I want you to glean this for yourself this morning. Where does the confidence rest when you make decisions, when you, when you do actions, when you perform tasks, and at the end of the day, you look back on the day and you try to feel something about that day? How did that day go? How are you feeling about that day? When you go over to somebody else's house and you see what they do and it's different and maybe better in some ways, and you come home and you feel something about that, how do you feel about that? What goes on in your heart? Where, Where are your emotions at that moment? Why do you do what you do, Mom? Do you do what you do because it's socially acceptable? Do you do what you do with confidence because it's what somebody who you know likes? Or because your kids were generally content that day? Do you make the decisions you make because they're the most popular or the most common? Do you you feel the pressures you feel because... That's how you relate to your position. In other words, this is how my mom did it. And if I don't live up to that, then I'm failing. This is how that lady does it. And if I don't live up to that, I'm failing. See, leadership is, is driven by character. And character is forged by wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs 9, verse 10, is the fear of the Lord. And the point is this. As a leader, in whatever capacity, your job is not to please others. And if pleasing others, if looking a certain way, if having a certain template, is that that's the end goal of your ministry, your leadership, mom, then you're never going to be what you want to be and, you're, and it's never going to be what you want it to be. Solomon lived in one of the most peaceful and prosperous times that the Middle East has ever known. Forty years of peace during his reign. But men were not satisfied with him. The Bible says that silver was so plentiful it was like stones in the street during his reign. People were not satisfied with him. But what if you changed the standard by which you operated? What if you stopped operating in comparison to others? What if you stopped operating by how your children feel about you or what your husband said about you? And you start operating by pleasing only one person and one person only. And this is your goal. That whatsoever you do, you do it heartily with all your might as best you can. I'm not giving you an excuse to sit on the couch and eat potato chips all day. But whatsoever you do, you do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. So that you get to the end of your day and you look back on your day and you ask this, Lord, did I please you today? Did I, did I make good on what my husband would desire me to do with my children? Did I make good on what my husband would desire me to do with my house? Did I honor my husband today? Did I honor my family today? Did I honor my commitments today? Did I honor you today? Did I try my best to do right? Did I love you and honor you? Did I do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men? What if you did everything as unto the Lord and then you rested content in the fact that you've pleased the Lord? 
So that even though there's always going to be someone that can look at you and what you've done and how you've done it and say that it's not up to snuff, if you can get on your knees before God in honesty, genuine humility before God and say, God, how am I doing before you? And you can find that you've been faithful, that that's enough for you. On judgment day, you will not answer to anyone here today. You're not going to answer to me on judgment day. Wives, you won't answer to your husbands on judgment day. Husbands, you won't answer to your wives on judgment day. Children, you will not answer to your parents on judgment day. You will answer to God and God alone. It will be you and it will be God. And you are looking for the words out of God's mouth. doesn't matter if your husband says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. doesn't matter if your pastor says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You are looking for the words from God's mouth that say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that should be your daily goal. Now again, if you're doing that, then you're going to be diligent. Then you're going to have integrity. Then you're going to work hard. Then you're going to do those things. But on that day where you just can't please anybody, and it's not necessarily because of you. Look, people people are people. You won't please everybody. But you can please God. Are you pleasing God? Don't allow yourself to be discouraged when others are displeased, unless the one who is displeased is the one who really matters, and that is God. And we're not simply talking about decisions here. Many leadership decisions are not clear-cut, Right? What pleases God type decisions. As a pastor, there are certain what pleases God decisions. Those are clear cut. And then there are other decisions that are not what pleases God. Should I keep the church at 68 degrees or should I keep the church at 70 degrees? No matter the decision I make there, someone's going to be displeased. Particularly 68 degrees, the women are displeased. 70 degrees, the men are displeased, right? And that's just the way it's going to be. That's the way, that's, 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 that's the decision. A decision which will leave people unhappy either way. But what can I do? Well, I can dictate how I lead by what pleases God. Am I leading with patience, compassion, grace, love? Am I deliberate, faithful, dedicated, and honest? If I can get down to the parts that I know please God, and I can put together enough parts that please God. God, I've had integrity. God, I've been humble. God, I've been admonished. I've listened. God, I'm easily entreated. God, I'm careful. God, I'm doing all of these things. Then it will lead to a decision that even though the men will come up and say, Pastor, it was way too warm in in here today. And the women, Pastor, it was way too cold in here today. I can say, I know, I know. But I'm pleasing God. And I'm going to do my best to help you. But I don't have to go home and say, man, I'm just a failure. I hope this is making sense. It doesn't mean I won't make bad decisions, but what it does mean is when I do make bad decisions, I'll approach it with humility, admit my mistake, learn from it, and move on. And in those times, there will still be some distractors, but you can't do anything about that. So let's just please God. So leaders, mothers, don't be discouraged. Please God. Next point. Followers, don't be alienated by imperfect leaders. Trust God. So as a leader, we please God and we do things heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Followers, can you trust that even though your leaders are imperfect, that God can work through them anyway? Anything touched by humans is bound to be imperfect, right? 
Leaders aren't just touched by humans. They are human. They will make mistakes. They will disappoint. Men don't have any interest. Many, many leaders, excuse me, don't have any interest in pleasing God. And so they'll reflect that nature in their personal leadership. And this can lead to a general discontentedness at best. And at worst, true alienation. But when we look at the scriptures, the majority of the leaders that we regularly interact with in life are specifically referenced. And we're given a model of how to handle them. And the key word throughout each text is submission. Citizens submit to the king, Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter 2. Servants submit to masters, that would be the employee-employer relationship, Colossians 3, Ephesians 6. Wives submit to husbands, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. Children submit to parents, Colossians 3, Ephesians 6. Whether good or bad, whether wise or foolish, Peter specifically says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, servants be subject to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Do you see the motivation by which you're called to submit there? Not because they are worthy. You don't submit to your government or to your boss or to your husband or to your parents or to your pastor. I didn't put that one up here, First Peter 5. You don't submit to them because they're worthy. You submit to them because God is worthy. You don't submit because they're going to make all the right choices and do all the right things. You submit because God has asked you to, and in showing obedience and trust, God can handle the rest. We see a similar idea in Colossians 3, verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. You don't do it just to be seen as a submitter, but you do it with a singleness of heart that you are actually placing yourself under that person's authority... Even the fro word we just read, because you fear God. God is the motivation. Can you trust God enough to follow an imperfect leader without undermining him, gossiping, tearing him down, or her, as the case may be, in disrespect? And this leads us to that second word there. Don't resent, nor disrespect. The temptation among leaders is not just to resent, uh, among those who follow, is not just to re- resent their leadership in bad times, but also to disrespect them by word or deed. And the Bible tells us that we ought to honor those who are in authority over us. First Peter 2.17 says, honor the king. Ephesians 6 verse 2 says, to honor your parents. If Paul apologized in Acts 23 verse 5 to the evil high priest for having spoken against him, because it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the rulers of thy people, found in Exodus 22 verse 28 then let us take care that we are not tearing down, either in word or in deed, those whom God has placed over us. Children, don't tear down your parents, even, and may I say especially, when they aren't there to hear it. Adult children, don't tear down your parents. Honor your parents. Honor them. That's what God expects of you. Your parents are not perfect, I know. I'm one. I'm not perfect, I know. Honor them. Not because of them, but because of God. Because of God. Wives, don't tear down your husband, even though he has deficiencies. I know, I'm one of them. We have deficiencies. Husbands, don't tear down your wives, especially around the guys. 
Honor them. Don't tear down your government leaders, no matter what side of the aisle they're on. Honor them. Don't tear down your boss, whether he will find out or whether he won't. Don't tear down your pastor, even if he deserves it. I know I'm one of them. Look, can you trust God enough to believe that God has allowed that person to have a position over you? And some of them, you've submitted yourself to them, right? You don't have to, but you have. Don't submit yourself, don't put yourself under someone's, uh, under someone's leadership and then tear them down. Better to just take yourself out of their leadership if you're able. Children, you can't do that. Wives, husbands, you can't do that. But if you've placed yourself there, don't tear them down. Solomon looked out at a people and he saw vanity and vexation. And he saw this because no matter who was in charge, they did not rejoice in him, right? That's what he said, because they, they will not rejoice in him. Could we be different than this? You don't have to approve of bad leaders. You don't have to approve of bad leaders and their bad choices. I don't have to look at government today and say, I think anything that's happening in government is good. Just because I don't, to, to honor my president is not to approve of him. To honor my congressman is not to approve of him. To honor my governor is not to necessarily approve of him. To honor a person is not necessarily to approve of their, all their actions. But can we at least trust God enough to respect the authorities that God has placed over us? Not to speak evil of them. To show them honor for the position that God has given them. And if we can find this place where leaders lead as unto the Lord. Right? So the leader is trying to please the Lord. And the follower is following as unto the Lord. So the follower is trying to please the Lord. Do you know what will happen? You'll find that you'll be... Pretty, pretty close to each other and there won't be a whole lot to argue about anymore. If husbands and wives would both lead and follow as unto the Lord, if parents and children would both lead and follow as unto the Lord, if pastor and congregation would both lead and follow as unto the Lord, doing it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, doing it God's way and at the end of the day saying, I have pleased God, you know what? There will be unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is, Psalm 133.1, for brethren to dwell together in unity. One final point as we close. Man can find lasting satisfaction. Leaders and followers alike, we must understand that lasting satisfaction does not come through them. Through the position, whether leader or follower, it does not come through the relationship. Leader, you will never find lasting satisfaction explicitly in your responsibility. Mom, let's talk about you again. If you live to be a mom and mom is everything you might find yourself one day semi-unsatisfied. At the very least, when your kids leave. That's not where... There's, there's satisfaction in being a mom. As mom pleases God and serves God. There's satisfaction in serving the Lord as mom. May I just say it that way? Follower, you will never find lasting satisfaction in your human leaders. I will never be able to be lasting satisfaction for you as a pastor. Father, your father, your mother, your boss, your president will never be lasting satisfaction for you. It will never be the end goal. But lasting satisfaction can be found, and it's found in leading for God, in following for God, not for men. 
And so as we close, I always give you, uh, I always give you a passage of scripture whereby we, uh, that, that points us to true lasting satisfaction. And I take you today to a few verses in Psalm 100. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 100. And this is where we're going to close today. And again, uh, this last verse, I, I don't normally give commentary on it. I just leave it with you. And it reminds us of lasting satisfaction. A psalm of praise. Psalm 100 verses 1 through 3. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord is. He is God. It is He that hath made us, not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Whether we talk about humility, submission, leadership, understanding, we live in God's world. We are His sheep. We play by His rules. God exalts the lowly. God abases the proud. The poor and wise child was elevated to reign. The old and foolish king was cast down. Which are you today? Let's play by his rules. And if we do so, what we'll find is the lasting satisfaction of eternal rewards. Let's pray.